today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to finish up this chapter on the resurrection. And, you know, when we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that it's us having life because of the blood of his son. And we're going to see in our study today that Paul is talking about the resurrection. And he's talking about, you know, the new body that we're going to receive and this whole thing about the reality and the certainty of heaven. And so um, what we're going to see today is so cool because in verses 50 through 57, we're going to see that the, the immortal Christians, that we will never die. We will never really die. No, I don't even like to use that word death when it comes to Christians. I don't. Um, you know, I remember they saw, uh, they did a headline when Pastor Chuck passed on. They said, you know, Chuck Smith dead. No, he's not dead. He, he, Jesus said in John eleven twenty six that that you'll never die. When you're a Christian, you never die. It's departure. It's passing on. You know, uh, we use different terms. Even in today's study, he uses the word sleep. It's a softer word because death is really not appropriate for, for Christians. So what we're going to see is that we're immortal. Okay, and we're going to look at that today. The must of the new body. The moment of the new body, imagine that. The message of this whole goal and the Messiah, the one who made it possible. And so first of all, immortal Christians. And then in verse 58, we're going to see that where we should be, therefore, immovable Christians. There are some people out there, and it's kind of weird. You know, they started off well, and they're fizzling out. You know, they used to serve the Lord with a vigor, with a passion. And that, that Jesus was their life. But now, for some reason, they're fizzling out. And that's why Paul, when he goes to this whole thing about the, the gospel and the power of the gospel and how people are dead and you can preach to them and they come to life and the blind see and the lame walk and just the whole beauty of this whole Christian gospel and heaven and hell. And it's real. And as he's sharing these things, he ends it in verse 58. Therefore, don't let anyone move you. I mean, serve the Lord with this reckless abandon. We're going to see the way he ends the whole thing is so beautiful. Therefore, my beloved brethren, he says, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain. And you have to ask yourself, you have to search your heart. In all honesty, are you abounding in the work of the Lord? Or are you abounding in your own work? Are you living your own life? You know, we're going to talk about that as we get towards the end. But, but the whole reality of heaven and hell and the gospel and working and all this stuff, death that's been defeated by our Lord Jesus Christ, this whole thing is found here, and what it does is it brings us to that place of, uh, of peace, you know. Uh, I, I was, again, I'm probably going to be sharing a lot of things, you know, with you as time progresses. My dad has gone home to be with the Lord, and, uh, and what I'm kind of planning on doing is, is kind of finishing up this transition as we come back into church service and 
things kind of settle down a little bit, but then what I'm probably going to do is I'm going to take some time off, and I'm going to just let this whole thing sink in, you know, uh, of my dad, and he has a whole bunch of journals that when he would read the Bible and he would write in them, my aunt was telling me he's got a ton of journals, and I can't wait just to take some time to go through those things and to see. You know, that my dad, you know, his, his journey as a Christian. But the cool thing is I was talking to my Aunt Lydia yesterday, and she was telling me that one of my dad's siblings um, was having a really hard time with his passing. And she said that, um, but the Lord met him, and he had a dream. So my Uncle Mike, he had a dream. And he said that in the dream, uh, there was a door. And he said that he went to the door. He, she said he opened the door, and the other side of the door was my dad, his brother. And he said that my dad had the biggest smile from ear to ear that he had ever seen. He said that the Lord showed him how happy my dad is in heaven. See, and we see that. We're going to see that in our study today. Imagine that, getting a new body. You guys imagine that. Uh, how much, some of you here, you know, you guys, do you like new, new clothes? They feel good. They look good or whatever. Uh, even to my jeans, I haven't washed them in, uh, I think, a year because I want them to stay black. You know, the, the new clothes, they're nice. And then, you know, you have a new car. Have you ever gotten a new car? I mean, the smell. Some of you guys are saying, shaking your head, no, I've never had one. Oh, man, I wish you could at least get one new car in your lifetime. <laughs> it's kind of cool, you know, um, the smell of it, the whole, uh, it's updated and everything. Uh, or maybe even a new house. Uh, I don't know if you ever had a new house, a brand new house. Imagine how cool that is. Uh, I, I thank God for my house, but um, I have a lot of things I got to do to fix it up and to just kind of bring it back to where it needs to be. You know, but that's okay. That's all part of God's plan for my life. But imagine a brand new house. And so, you know, those are cool concepts. But eventually, even those things uh, suffer from entropy, huh? The second law of thermodynamics. You know, but, but think about it, how one day we're going to have a new body. A new body. No more sin. No more decay. No more fatigue. No more worrying if you're going to get injured. You're going to be a brand new, a brand new body that will be able to inhabit eternity. And so Paul talks about this in our study today, and, and I encourage you guys as we go through this, understanding um, that, you know, this is kind of cool. We're going to see that this truth is good for us for the day that we die or the day that our loved ones die through those tough days. But it's also true for every day that we live. Because we should be serving the Lord. That's what he says. And so, notice what we read, first of all, as far as us and the immortal Christians we are, and in verse 50, the must of it, how we need to have a new body. He says in verse 50, Now this I, I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption if you go down to verse 53 notice what he says for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on 
immortality. There in verse 50, Paul says, now this I say. And from time to time, you're going to see that in his spiritual writings. It kind of makes our antennas perk up. In verse one, chapter 1, verse 12, he said, this I say, in dealing with division. In chapter 7, verse 29, he said, this I say, because the time is short. Uh, we'll see it other places in his writings. For example, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and Galatians 3.17. Others, you know, these are basically where he says, now this I say, those are times where he's saying, hey, listen up, church family. Understand this, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And basically what he's saying is a reiteration of the reality of the resurrection, that we will have a new body. You know, there will be a body. This one will have no sin within. It will be a, a body that can live in the presence of God. If we were in the presence of God, we would disintegrate in these bodies. They cannot inhabit heaven. They cannot live there in eternity. But these new bodies will have, will have the capacity to do that. So flesh and blood won't inherit it. But we're going to have... A, a new body. And it's interesting also, I don't know if this is really a, a big thing, but some theologians will mention the fact that Jesus' resurrection body is described as flesh and bones, not flesh and blood. We see that in Luke twenty four thirty nine, and Ephesians chapter 5 in, in verse 30. And so I think, uh, we don't know what the flesh will be like, uh, so to speak, in heaven, but there's probably not going to be any blood. So flesh and blood won't inherit the kingdom of God, but we're going to have new bodies, right? The, the main thing really Paul is saying here is, trust me, there must be a new imperishable and immortal body in order to live in heaven forever and ever. And we will have that body. You know, William Barclay, he kind of gave a comparison. He said, a man may be able to run enough to catch the morning train, and yet need to be very different to be able to run enough for the Olympic Games. A man may write well enough to amuse his friends, and yet need to be very different to write something which men will not willingly let die. A man may talk well enough in the circle of his, his own club, and yet need to be very different to hold his own circle in real experts. A man always needs to be changed to enter into a higher grade of life. And Paul insists that before we can enter the kingdom of God, we must be changed. And so there, when it comes to the immortal, there's the must. But then next, there's the moment. Look at verse 51. He says here, Behold, I, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Again, he uses that word behold to kind of capture our, our attention. Check it out. He says, listen up. There, there's a mystery, which it contextually speaks of something that was previously unknown, but now revealed by God. Usually when you find the mysteries in the New Testament, they are implicit in the old, but explicit in the new. For example, in one sense, the, the mystery of, of godliness, the mystery of God in the flesh, the mystery of the Trinity, those were implicit in the Old Testament. When you read your Old Testament, you see it there, but it's not really as straightforward 
as it is in the New Testament. The New Testament, it clearly, you know, Jesus is God. Clearly, you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so those are our mysteries that are now revealed. Well, there's another mystery in the Old Testament that is explicit in the New, and that is the rapture of the church. Notice he says right there in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. Have any of you here um, gone your whole life without sleeping? No way, right? We sleep every single day, don't we? Some of you guys sleep multiple times a day. I know how you are, man. You know what's funny is um, I, uh, I trip out on sleeping. I trip out on it. Do you guys ever think about it? How every night you get tired and you go to sleep, basically what you do is you hibernate overnight, right? And then you kind of like recharge. You put your phone in and it recharges. We recharge and we wake up in the morning. To me, even sleeping is a, is a miracle. I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but that's just awesome. But anyways, that's not what he's talking about right here. He's not talking about regular sleep. He's talking about, about dying. Not, not, not everybody is going to die. Again, like I mentioned earlier, sleep is a softer and more tender way of speaking of death. Now, whatever you do, don't think it's soul sleep. There are some Christians, some out there, Seventh-day Adventists, and a few others who believe in soul sleep. But there's no such thing as soul sleep. Because the moment we die, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You know, when Stephen was dying there in Acts chapter 7, 56 through 60, he saw Jesus, and Jesus stood up to receive him. And so we're not talking about physical sleep. We're not talking about soul sleep. When he says we shall not all sleep, what he's basically saying is we shall not all die. And so there is a generation that will not rot in the ground. And you know what, you guys? That might be us. I look at the signs of the times, and I see everything going on. And, of course, we've been hearing these prophecy teachers for many years. And so, whatever, you know, no man knows the day or the hour, but I'm sensing the season. And that, that's why um, this is such an important passage for us, because this very well might be in your lifetime. You know, when Jesus uh, gave the parable of the fig tree, he said, hey, when you see the fig tree begin to blossom and, you know, the things start happening there and the fruit and all that, he said, I'm going to tell you something. That generation that sees that fig tree blossom, they won't pass away until the coming of the Lord. Now, there are many people, and they have a very good reason, I, I kind of feel the same way, that believe that fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. And in 1948, Israel became a nation. In 1967, they regained Jerusalem. And I think in one sense, you can make a really solid case to say that we have seen the fig tree blossom. And so Jesus said, that generation won't pass away until I come. And we see everything, all the signs in front of us, the, the global economy, the, the microchip, you know, the one world government. I mean, all the things that, are, that, are, that, are, that we see in front of us, the things that we see in Europe, the things that we see in Israel, the signs of the times, the, the pandemic, believe it or not, the pestilence, that is a sign that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 21. And so 
this thing about there will be a generation that will not rot. There will be a generation that won't die. That might be us. You know, he mentions right here in verse 52, that's all going to happen. He says, you know, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. In a, in a moment, and then he says it again in the, in the twinkling of an eye. And basically what, what that is, is it emphasizes the instantaneousness of it. You know, the Greek word moment is the word atomos. Now, there was a time that we believe the atom was unable to be split. And so that's where that word, it kind of comes from. It basically comes from the concept, and the Greek concept was that you can't get any, any as quicker than that. That in the twinkling of an eye, as scientists tell us, one eleventh of a second, that that's going to come. And we will be changed. We will be raptured. We will be taken out. You know, they say that they, we bat our eyes. I don't know if you guys knew this. We bat our eyes 20,000 times a day. Think about that. We don't even see it, huh? Uh, but it's all day long we're batting our eyes. Well, one of those blinks, one of those bats is going to be the rapture of the church where God will take us out. And so, you know, I was thinking, and I think I shared with you guys before, because some people say, well, when I see everybody getting raptured, then I'm going to get right with God. No, you won't have enough time. Some people think it's going to be like Beauty and the Beast. You remember Beauty and the Beast at the very end, and the beast was there, and it's all changing, and it kind of took some time for him to transform? No, it'll be one eleventh of a second. We'll go from this ugly, you know, broken down, beat up, battered body to that glorious body that God is going to give us. And Paul right here, he's saying, you guys need to know this because you need to be ready. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 40 and 41, that two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. That's how it's going to happen. Christians are to always be ready, to get ready and to stay ready. Right? For all others, Jesus' coming will be like a thief in the night. That's what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 2. But for us, we should be ready for his return, which can happen at any moment. You know, the, the passage that we always turn to is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I was wondering if you could turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in verse 13. Paul says, I, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or, or died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, notice, who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. 
Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so, um, Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, basically their question was, well, these people who have already died in Christ, they've missed out. Uh, We're never going to see them again. And Paul, what he was telling them is, no, as a matter of fact, those people who have died before us, they're going to precede us. When they die, they're instantly in the presence of the Lord. But when the rapture of the church happens, it's then that they receive their resurrected bodies. And so their bodies will be resurrected. And then we who are alive at that moment, our bodies will be transformed. And then we're going to meet the Lord in the air and we're going to be with him forever. What that does is that ushers in after that the seven-year tribulation period. And then after that, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then after that, eternity. Eternity. And so we're there, you guys. Uh, I remember Mike McIntosh a while back. He said, gentlemen, start your engines for the end of the world is at hand. And I think that's where we're at now. We have to be ready for the rapture. The last thing in the world, you don't want to be left behind. And so we need to be abiding in Christ. We need to give our lives to the Lord. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that today you would give your heart to him. If you've been playing games with God, I pray that today you would start getting serious in your walk and commitment with him. You know, I believe that this pandemic that we've gone through, you know, that God is shaking things up. And on all honesty, I I believe that his intention through this whole thing was to draw us closer to him. There are certain things in my life that I can honestly say God was putting his finger on. God was showing me things. And I believe with all my heart that this shows us that we have a personal relationship with God. And I believe that if you're honest... And if you're a Christian, then you will admit that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you through this pandemic. And there are certain things that he's sharing with you specifically, right? I know with me, very specific in my devotions with God, very specific in my prayer life, very specific in the way that I'm supposed to be reading my Bible, very specific in the way that I've been supposed to be seeking him, very specific in the husband that he wants me to be in the things that my relationship with my wife has grown, with my children has grown. Those are things that I believe that as we're you know, nearing the Lord's return, that he wants to really make us, bring us to that point where we're ready. Well, First John 2.28, it says, Now little children abide in him, that when he appears, we, went, we might have confidence before him and not be ashamed at his coming. If Jesus were to come today, Uh, Can you honestly say that you're sold out and surrendered, completely committed to the cause of Christ? See, that's what this whole rapture thing, you know, and God kind of giving us the the aspect of, hey, I can come at any moment. That's what it's intended to do. First John chapter three, it says, if you have this hope, it purifies you. And so we'll be transformed from the finite to the infinite, from the corruptible to the incorruptible, from the perishable to the imperishable, uh, from the terrestrial to the celestial. Philippians 3.21, it says that God will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things 
to himself. And so back in, in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about this trumpet, you know, that, that, that trumpet there in verse 52 will sound. Um, Thessalonians calls it the last trumpet, but it doesn't have to be the last trumpet in the book of Revelation. It could be the last trumpet that Christians hear on earth. Or like one commentator, Ironside, said, the last trumpet was a figure of speech that came from the Roman military when they broke camp. The first trumpet meant strike the tents and prepare to leave. The second trumpet meant fall into line. But the third and last trumpet meant march away. And this last trumpet describes the Christians' marching orders at the rapture of the church. And so when the Lord comes to initiate the tribulation period, which is the beginning of the end, the judgment from Christ upon the wicked world, there is a generation who will not taste death. And what we find in the Greek language, the Greek word is harpaso, translated to be caught up, but then the Latin word is rapturos, and that's where we get our word rapture. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, you have the 69 weeks that have already been fulfilled, but there's one last seven-year period, that's the tribulation period, where God will deal primarily with the Jews. And so everything comes together. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah 26, uh, verse 20 and 21. It says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth, for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her sins. And that's a passage where God says, come my people, kind of like we see in, in Revelation chapter 4, the same thing where he tells John to come up here and then God says, hide yourself for a while while I throw out my wrath on planet earth. Now we're going to see that that is a time, the tribulation period is a time where the wrath of God will fall upon the earth. And so, you know, you read the Bible, you read Genesis 18, 23 to 25, and what you find is Abraham was talking to God and he said, you won't destroy the righteous with the wicked, will you? Far be it from the Lord to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And God said, absolutely not, I won't. And so um, what the Lord did is he sent the angels in, they pulled Lot and his family out, just like he did with Noah, he lifted him up above the flood. And that's what God will do as the world ends. He will rapture us out. And we see that picture of Enoch in Genesis 5, 22 through 24, and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. The Bible says that Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And same thing there. He didn't die. And what was he doing before he got raptured? Homeboy was walking with God. So I encourage you, make sure that you're ready for the rapture. We won't all die. Some, there's going to be a generation that won't taste death. And we need to know the Lord. And we need to walk with the Lord. And so we read next in verse 54, the, the message. And so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written... Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is 
your victory. And, and here, in one sense, this message is the whole goal. I mean, about heaven and about defeating death. Paul reaches back to a couple of prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah 25 and verse 8, and Isaiah, Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. And basically, those are two amazing passages that in one sense tell us a whole thing about the message of our mansion in heaven and how death is defeated. You know, it's interesting how he says that death is, is swallowed up in victory. And that it's an intentional, you know, writing to, to drastically express the way that death is absolutely destroyed. You know, there's something interesting. Have you guys seen, uh, some of you guys have probably seen The Avengers, right? And... Um, I want to share this with you real quick. Um, don't tune me out yet. Um, there's a, a character on the last two Avengers uh, called Thanos. Some of you guys might know who he is. And it comes from this Greek word right here, translated death. The, the Greek word is thanatos. And so it's, they're related. And so, you know, obviously Marvel, they're going to get this from the Greek. And then you have the Greek mythology. It's all kind of mingled in there. And this character, Thanos, was all about death. And you guys know it. He wanted to snap his fingers, and then half of everything that was alive would die. But the interesting thing about it is that um, what we find is that death itself, which is really epitomizing the devil, doesn't just want half the, the people to die. He wants everyone to die. That's the reality. That's the real Thanos, the real Thanatos that we face. But then it was just so cool because, you know, when you get the whole thing interesting, the Infinity Wars, then when you get to the end game. I remember the first time I watched Infinity Wars, and when it ended, I was like, what? That's not right. You know, everybody, half the population is dead. I mean, don't movies never end that way, right? The good guys always come back, right? And so when I saw that movie, I was tripping out. But then I realized my kids told me there's going to be another one coming called The End Game. And in The End Game, you guys remember what happened? Uh, for those of you who saw it, whatever, Iron Man got the, the Infinity Stones. And, you know, he ended up doing what? Snapping his fingers and death and all the evil, all the evil, all of it was instantly destroyed. And that's kind of what we see in the gospel. But it won't be Iron Man, it'll be the Son of Man. It's what Jesus has done for us. He has swallowed up death. He has utterly defeated the devil and death. The Bible says that they'll be cast into the lake of fire. And the Bible says in heaven, there will be no more death. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate right here. That Christians not only have victory over death, we actually have victory in death. It's interesting when you read the whole uh, thing right here, basically what he's saying is that um, it's kind of like some people visualize, well, death stops, death stops. They, they visualize it like this crazy tornado that goes through a neighborhood and, you know, and the tornado's over, but then you kind of have to deal with it all. No, what, what, what we're talking about here, this victory that we have in Jesus, is that that whole tornado, not only it ends, everything gets put back together again. The devil does not have a sliver of victory. 
Jesus does. Life wins. Our Lord wins. And that's what he's saying right here. And that's why he says it in, in such a, an awesome, awesome way. You know, we don't have to be afraid to die. We don't have to be afraid. I was reading about the father of Alexander the Great and how he had a servant. Every single day the servant was uh, assigned to come into his presence and tell him every single day you will die. Imagine that, having someone every, okay, your job is to tell me every day I will die. Why? Why, why do you need to tell me that? Well, it's good to know that. Uh, Psalm uh, talks about uh, that in 32. It says that, uh, so teach us to number our days and we gain a heart of wisdom. And so we're not afraid. Uh, we, we live life with this understanding that either I'm going to die or I'm going to get raptured. It changes everything. It gives you a greater urgency because our tendency is to get caught up in this world when in all reality, God's gonna, we're going to see it at the end, he wants us to preach the gospel. And so what we find right here is, you know, we need to be aware of this. How does it all happen? It's the Messiah in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is, is the law. You know, and so sin causes death, right? And, and whenever we violate the law, that's what's called sin. And so how can we deal with that? How can we overcome the law? How can we overcome sin? And the answer is we can't. We can't. But Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled the law, and he took all our sins, he put them on himself, and he hung there and was nailed to a cross, and he died for us. And he has defeated death. And that's what we find right here, this whole thing that we read about. You know, we're talking about this, this virus and how we need a vaccine for it. And, you know, prayerfully, we'll, we'll be able to find one so we can get back to uh, just a, a full-on normal life. Well, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He has the antidote. He is the cure. He is the one who has conquered death. And so, praise God uh, for that. You know, and so we find that we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, Christians, we are immortal Christians. Life is fun. It really is. But it's just a vapor. Get ready. Eternity is coming. A new body. I'm going to be taller. I'm going to have dark hair. It's kind of funny. I've been talking to people who have had dreams about their loved ones who have died, and, uh, and just beautiful dreams, most of them, not all of them, saying that their loved ones were probably in their early 30s. Um, again, we don't know. We know Jesus died in his 30s, um, and so we'll see, but we're going to be in great shape. I do know that for sure. But anyways, immortal Christians leading us to verse 58, which is immovable Christians. So he says there, as he puts it all into perspective, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do you ever get tired of the ministry? You ever have to kind of drag your feet to get there? 
you know, this is the answer, man. The, the reality of the certainty of the resurrection. The reality that some are going to hell, some are going to heaven, and your service might make a difference. And what we find right here is Paul is saying, this is how it all ends up. We, 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 he tells them, you know, I love you, my, my beloved brethren. I'm not telling this for any other reason. I love you. Listen, I'm going to serve the Lord. I don't know if you are. I pray that you are. But you know that if I'm encouraging you to serve the Lord, it's not because... You know, I don't love you. He says, man, I, I love you. This is sincere. This is general. This is his full-on affection. He says, number one, to, to be steadfast. And that, that word, it means to stand firm, resolute, unwavering, similar to the second word, which means to be immovable. I mean, do you think the devil has a plan to move you out of ministry? Absolutely. Does he have a plan to move you out of the work of God? Absolutely. And in many ways, in many ways. You know, Demas has forsaken me, Paul said, having loved this present world. It happens all the time. The trials of life. Paul the Apostle, when he was going to Jerusalem, they said, hey man, you're going to have trials and chains and tribulations. That's all that's waiting for you in Jerusalem. But Paul said in Acts 20 and verse 24, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Over the years, man, I've been a Christian for a long time, since 1989. I started getting involved in ministry in the very beginning I started serving the Lord. You know, and by the grace of God, I'm still here but I can tell you, man, probably literally hundreds, hundreds of men and women who used to serve the Lord, and now they don't. Some aren't even going to church anymore. Some are not involved in ministry anymore. So what Paul is saying right here is the result of this should be that not only don't let anyone move you, but I tell you what, get stronger. That's what he says right there. No, stand steadfast, immovable. Here it is, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know, in verse 10, remember Paul said, I, I labored more abundantly than they all? The same Greek word, these are, 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 are similar Greek words. Paul laboring abundantly, hear him telling them to be abounding in the work of of the Lord. And it really is so cool the way Paul weaves the logic into the chapter of laboring for the Lord because of the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the horrors of hell, and the hope of heaven. You know, John Calvin's physician told him to stop working or he would die. And Calvin replied, Would you have my master come and find me loitering? One person, Lenski, said always adds another point in youth and in age, in pleasant as well as in somber days, when many work with us and the work is a joy and when we plod on alone with heavy hearts, when we have already done much and when others have done scarcely, anything continues to mean always. What a word for the thousands who work pray, give, suffer as little as possible. Because of our wealth of heavenly spoils and our eternal victory in Christ, we can afford to abound. We are not called to idleness and mere enjoyment, 
but to diligent effort in the work of the Lord. Then he says right there in closing, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And then you might look at the ministry and you might think, well, I don't really see a whole bunch. Are you doing it in the Lord? Don't worry, man. It's not in vain. You know, one guy said this, in God's world, for those who are in earnest, there is no failure. No work truly done, no word earnestly spoken, no sacrifice freely made was ever made in vain. God sees it all. And we need to know that. You know, the Lord's work is spiritual and the results are therefore for the greater part, invisible to our eyes. We can't measure the faith of that person or the love or the virtues in the hearts of the people that we've ministered to, but God can. In the case of the most of our earthly work, the results are easily measured. We can see them. You know, a bricklayer, he lays so many bricks in so many hours and receives so much pay. A merchant, he sells so much in his store and he makes so much profit. But it's not so in the work of the Lord. We can't count or take inventory. The results are too intangible. The Lord alone sees and knows. We often feel as though our efforts are in vain and are therefore liable to become discouraged and to cease the strong exertion or to stop altogether. Hence, Paul here writes to us this apostolic assurance that our labor is not vain in the Lord. You see, knowing this whole, whole thing, it, I think, you know, man, the, the reality of the resurrection, the certainty of eternity, you know, knowing this, it's definitely going to help us if one day, you guys, if we're there and we die or our loved ones in Christ die, I think it'll help us for that day. But here Paul says more, though. I wanted to help you today. I want today. I want you to have that in your heart today that I will serve the Lord with a reckless abandon. That I will always be asking him for the marching orders. That I will always be ready to speak the gospel, to live it, to be a fisher of men. See, it's not just for that day. It's for today. And in all reality, it's for every day. And as we have the worship team come forward, I want to read to you one last story. Um, in 1952, uh, this young uh, Florence Chadwick, she stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways, and the weather was foggy and chilly that day. So she could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her, but still she swam, think about this, for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way because of her fatigue, her mother was in a boat alongside of her and told her that she was so close to not give up that she could make it. But finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out of the water. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered at the sh that the shore was only a half mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog, 
all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. If I could have seen the shore, I, I would have made it. And so we consider her words. I think if I could have seen the shore, I, I would have made it. For believers, the, the shore is home in heaven with him, the place the Lord promised to prepare for us. We will live for him, with him forever and ever. And that's why it's so important to see the shore. You know, if we can see through the fog and by the scriptures picture our eternal home in our hearts, then it will comfort us and energize us. I mean, the truth is this. We're going to make it to the shore because we believe in Jesus. We're going to make it to the shore because we believe in Jesus. But the question is, will you continue to swim? Will you continue to serve to the very end? And that's what Paul is saying. Hey, this should move us to that place. And so if you're out there and you're thinking about stopping, I thank God we have a church, so many servants that have laid down their life. Some get paid, some don't. The Lord sees your heart. What a blessing that is, man. Even in this whole pandemic, the way that you have been giving, the way that God has just blessed, even in that, man, I praise him for that. All that is part of the work of the Lord. But we need to be open to that. So as Christians... Let's let this uh, praise raise. Let's get stronger, more urgency. But, but if you're out there and you're not a Christian, I pray you would know God loves you. Even though you know, you're going through all the pain and the heartache and the struggles, the Lord is here to set you free, to fill the void, to lift you up, to forgive you of all your sins, to write your name in the book of life, to give you a home in heaven. But he's a perfect gentleman. He will never force himself upon you. It's a decision that you have to make. And you can make it just like that in the stillness of your heart. You can say today, yes, I believe. I believe I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And today I want to trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord. I pray that if that's you, that today you would make that prayer in your heart and that you would find the life, that love that He offers to you. It is real. I know what happened in my life. I know what happened in my dad's life. I know it happened to many of my loved ones who have passed on before me. And we will be reunited one day in heaven because of what Jesus has done.